Good evening to all of you. As uh, proposed a couple of weeks ago, last week I uh, inserted a satsang about the relationship between the human beings and the different entities, spirits, forms of existence, beings in this universe. I made it very simple, I kept it very simple, and I just showed how many traditions and in how many directions this view of the world is going. And today I'm back to the Gospel of Luke, so I will try to keep it like this, one time uh, an alternative subject, then again back to the Gospel of Luke. I wish, of course, to finish the Gospel of Luke this season, this year, so that it's a full cycle. Last uh, time when I spoke, when I read from the Gospel of Luke, I was in the middle of a very strange, long demonstration, which, um, because I had not reached to the end of it, it was not clear where is Jesus trying to get, because he is talking, is the parable of the shrewd manager, as it would be called in modern language. He is talking about a manager who is called for the judgment of God. God is asking him, please account for what you have done with your life. And he is acting in a very skillful way by getting support from other people who will vouch for him, who will act beneficially for him, who will mend their relationship with his master, who is God. And Jesus was telling in this parable, the master, who is God, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, like he somehow fixed it. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. This is a very important statement. I passed it last time because it would have been difficult to comment it. I'm reading it again. For the people of this world, the humans, the normal humans, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind. So people with people horizontally, then are the people of the light. The people of the light would be the people from Shambhala. They would be the people like Milarepa. They would be, why not, the devas, the deities, and the angels. And Jesus tells an important thing. The people of this world are more shrewd with each other than the people of the light. Like Jesus himself is not shrewd in any way. He is not tricky. Jesus is a terrible diplomat. Of course we wish that all the diplomats and the politicians of the world would be like Jesus. But then we wouldn't live on planet earth. Then we would live in Hiranya Loka. Then we would live in Shambhala. Then we would live in a higher Loka with much, much better resonance with the truth and the purity and the spirituality. In this world, 
The dominant chakra is Vadistana, and the personality of Svadhisthana in yoga is defined as Makara, the crocodile, the symbol of the astrological sign of the Capricorn. And the crocodile is supposed to be a tricky animal, slippery, tricky, its way of hunting, it's very twisted. The crocodile sheds tears, and even in common language people say, oh, you are shedding crocodile tears. Crocodile tears means insincere tears. On Svadhisthana, we have crocodile tears. Like people cry, but they don't mean it. People cry, but it doesn't come from the heart. People cry, and five minutes later they are ready to do the same shit again. There is no repentance into it. It's not, those are not the tears of the heart about which Khalil Gibran talks when he speaks about crying from the heart. Crying from the heart, what Jesus expects, what Shambhala expects, what uh, Mahatma Gandhi would expect from you is a purification of the heart. But the world of Svadhisthana is a slippery world, is a world of crocodiles, the, like the cat undulating on Svadhisthana, like the crocodile, you push it with a stick and it comes back from the other side and bites you, turning around, tricky. It's not, it's a little bit like fighting in a war with espionage and psychic warfare, sabotage, not fair fight, chest to chest, face to face, like two knights who are jousting with each other with spears. Let's see who is the winner. Let's see who is the greater warrior, you know, like the direct thing on Manipura. On Svadhisthana, there is this slippery perversity, the lie, the cheating, the deceit. And Jesus says, people of this world understand other people of this world, while people of the light, as he calls them, they live by much higher principles. They would not make sometimes a little compromise here and there can save the day. We see, you know, that some person did some heroic act in Rwanda when there was the genocide in Rwanda. Or some person did some heroic thing uh, like Schindler's List or something in the Holocaust of the Second World War or something like this. It doesn't mean that those people were saints. They became sort of heroes, but they were not clean. They are just Vadistanistic people who dealt with others Vadistanistic people and they made some deals. And sometimes those deals were beneficial to themselves. They had collaterals. They contained compromises. It was not a clean stuff. A knight from Shambhala would never do such compromises. Would say, you know, better die with honor than, you know, stain yourself with compromises and things like this. But the people of this world sometimes have success precisely because of these compromises. Many, many things in what happened in the last two, three thousand years 
when we read about the history of our planet and different spiritual things, it's a history of compromises. You hear the history of the Catholic Church, it's like, are they saints or are they slippery business people? It's very difficult to know because there are good things mixed with bad things. In the karma yoga, which people do, like for example, the Catholic Church invented in the 20th century an organization which is very maligned. It's very maligned by Hollywood and the propagandistic enemies of the Catholic Church, uh, which is called Opus Dei. And you almost cannot find any novel written by this uh, pro-establishment writers, which is not maligning the Catholic Church and Opus Dei. Opus Dei being a reaction of a Spanish bishop, prelate, high emissary of the church, who simply said, we noticed that already in the first half of the 20th century, the show in the 19th century as well, the show began to be run by the money. The Rothschilds and Rockefellers and Morgans and these are the people who run the world. And the Catholic Church, which once upon a time used to have the, probably the biggest financial power in the world, became second, third, fifth, tenth, twentieth, hundred. Like there are many, many, many multinational corporations, financial empires and others, which became much stronger. And therefore, the Catholic Church started being kicked. It fell down to the ground and they mercilessly were kicking it. And this guy said, wait a second, we are almost a billion Catholics in the world and we are just getting kicked by a handful of assholes just because they have money. Can't we, the Catholics, join hands and make money? And it was not very easy because the Catholic Church, like many other religions, preaches poverty like a virtue. In the collective subconscious mind, the idea is that if you are poor, you are holy. If you are poor, you are clean. And that's why it was very difficult to fight against it. And that's why Opus Dei is semi-secret in the middle of the church because it doesn't fit. It's like a, you take a pebble in your mouth and you cannot eat properly the food because that pebble is clicking against your teeth. You know, it's like somehow mm, something is not quite right there. I hope you realize that the way of thinking of people determines their resonance with money. Look what the resonance has England with London and the city of London and the Taurus Queen and what resonance has Italy and Spain and other, how the Spain had a colonial empire which contained all of the South America and Latin America and many, many other parts from Africa and the Philippines and the, the whole world. And they managed to fuck, to fuck it up. Like the money which the Spanish and Portuguese Catholic empires could summon together, it was crazy. And they lost it like this. Even by the buccaneers and the pirates, the famous pirates of the 16th, 17th, 18th century, what was their main task? To rob the Spaniards of their money. And they robbed tons and tons and tons and tons of gold.
the Spaniards energetically, they couldn't hold to it. But the British, they built the city of London and for centuries, the money, the biggest money in the world was happening there. When it went from the city of London, it went to the daughter of the city of London, the New York Stock Exchange. England, America, it's the same Anglo-Saxon derivative. It's the same resonance. It's the same kind of Anglo-Saxon culture in the end. So, therefore, I was talking about this Opus Dei when I deviated. This guy, who had some financial resonance probably, I think Baladur or whatever his name was, he simply said, we are a million Catholics or a billion Catholics. A lot of them truly believe in God. A lot of them are ready to make sacrifices. So we can very easily pull a lot of money together and make some companies, some firms, some banks, some this, some that, and create a financial industry which belongs to the Catholic Church, which is emotionally always for the Catholic Church. And in this way, the Catholic Church won't be so easy to be kicked out, to be... Of course, this has contained, when you look at the history, I said, of the Catholic Church, you see a lot of these compromises. You wouldn't have had Saint Basil the Great, or Saint Augustine, or even Saint Francis of Assisi in the 12th century, or even Saint Teresa of Avila in the 16th century, come up with this kind of stuff. They wouldn't have made this compromise. The people of the light, they are more black and white. They want to be perfectionistic. They want to be, you know, like, let's stick to the moral and ethical things. And then this Spanish Baladur, or what his, never, his name is, he says, what if we cheat a little bit on the money? What if we don't pay taxes correctly? What if we do a little bit of this? What if we do a bit of favoritism between companies? What if we do some uh, inside dealing and so on? Because it's for the glory of God. It's for the greater glory of God. This is what the Jesuits did in the Catholic Church, you know? Whatever they did, killing people or conquering or manipulating or making money, it was AMDG. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam, for the greatest glory of God. It was a sort of a like Krishna-like karma yoga that you do, and sometimes you can do it even a little bit dirty. As long as it is for God, you are on the side of angels. As long as you don't smear your own hands, you know, like this Baladur or whatever, again, his name was, who did the Opus Dei, he never became a rich man himself. He lived very ascetically. He was not wealthy in any way. He was suffering from health problems. Like he was a man who, I don't know if he was proclaimed a saint or not, but he was close to being proclaimed a saint. And his thing was that he adapted to the 20th century and he created a sort of a compromise. Like, I know that you guys in Shambhala wouldn't uh, dirt your hands with this. But we down here, we can take some shit. You know, we can do some uh, 
half honorable deals. It's not a fully honorable deal, but it's ad maiorum dei gloriam. It's for the greater glory of God, and therefore it's justified in a way or another. No? And then it is like the, the whole point of it is that Jesus himself wrote about it, contained this idea, and he said, the master commanded the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Like sometimes God needs these shrewd people who promote a cause. Um, he saved, uh, I don't know how many children from being kidnapped and killed. And he gave $25,000 to a warlord in Africa. Yeah, but you shouldn't sponsor a fucking warlord from Africa. Because then with those money he will buy Kalashnikovs and God knows what. And it will get worse. Yeah, but he saved 10,000 children from death. It's a dirty deal. Whichever way you do it, it's a lose-lose. You win something, you lose something. So it's just that you are looking for the greater good. Where is the greater good? You cannot get a perfect. Maybe Jesus could get a perfect solution. But the solution of Jesus is Jesus would come and then he would get crucified once more. Jesus would find a perfect solution in shedding his blood again. But this guy didn't have the moral strength of Jesus to die on a cross for those 10,000 children. And then he made a dirty deal. He said, take $250,000 or $250, and leave those children alone. It's not the most elegant solution. But it saved 10,000 lifetimes nevertheless. So it's the, on the level of Zvadistana and generally of the humanity, people are tolerating a certain amount of impurity. While one like Jesus, one like Milarepa, one like those from Shambhala, they find it like, Ugh, I don't want to. Remember, we just saw the movie of Blaise Pascal, and at some point, because his sister was gone, he was alone, and he was socializing with all sorts of aristocrats, because he was from the noble world. And he said, I never felt so disgusted. You know? And then they asked him, so why do you do it? Well, he said, if I don't do it, I'm just going to stay in bed and die, leave my physical body, which he actually did soon after. He dropped out of this because he couldn't tolerate it anymore. Ramakrishna was smoking tobacco and they asked him why. And he said, because when I am deep in Samadhi, I never remember and wish to come back to this fucking planet. And then I suddenly feel like I want to smoke a cigarette because my body, today we know, he didn't know the explanation in those days, but today we put, because my body is addicted to nicotine. And the nicotine addiction says, smoke a cigarette. And then he said, I come to my body because of the desire for a cigarette. Like Ramakrishna claimed, and he was a very sincere man. We have no reasons to doubt that he was bullshitting or because he was not the kind of person who was bullshitting around. Ramakrishna claimed, Ramakrishna claimed that he was using inferior desires and even addictions to tobacco, which killed him. He died of a throat cancer. No, from tobacco. You know, it's written on all the packages today. Tobacco kills, you know. It's like we all know. No? And uh, 
and he used it to stay in the body to be attracted to this world to find some connection to this world sort of a, not very pure it's not the most pure way of being it's not the most pure thing but it did happen so Jesus is admitting sometimes people in the lower world they so he says I tell you use worldly wealth like if you have shrewdness the wealth means wealth of knowledge wealth of wealth of friendship worldly wealth doesn't mean only money it means all the things of this world to gain friends for yourself so when it is gone because it will be gone your life will be gone everything will be gone your health will be gone your ojas will be gone your body will be gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings eternal dwellings are not here this is not an eternal dwelling no. so he says use the physical world as a trampoline as a springboard to create merit to do some good things save those 10000 children's lives or something and you will be welcome into the eternal dwellings when everything else was gone so jesus says even even if things are not black and white do something positive to create spiritual merit and he continues whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth who will trust you with true riches that's why there does exist a sort of um, can you go and solve that because it will continue i know it So he says if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth who will trust you with true riches It's very very important no because for example there are people who cannot accomplish things I don't even know there is a very peculiar name which we have in Romanian language about this no and no like there are people who simply cannot accomplish things and then some of these people they can't do this they can't do this they can't do they can't raise children they can't pay make a family they can't run a business they can't uh, finish a university study they can't do you know whatever they try they flop and then we see them come into yoga and they want to become like milarepa and the question is when you can't make a successful business would you be able to make a successful path to enlightenment like is enlightenment easier than business easier than family easier than commitment easier than honest work no it isn't it is at least as difficult or more difficult and the problem is exactly like what buddha expressed when he said people are ruled by desire and when you have desire 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 you are a slave so if in spirituality you are ruled by desire you are also a slave and therefore it's the same thing here jesus is talking about a certain kind of inefficiency he meant he starts from dishonesty 
of being reliable. He says, he who can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. That's why, for example, in Thailand, they say that when a Bodhisattva, a 90% Buddha, is to be promoted to the next level, to the last level, to become a Buddha, he, one of the ultimate tests which you get is to be made king. That's what they believed about their previous king. The previous king was believed to be a perfect example of that. And if as a king you turn into an asshole, you can be not trusted with little and then you cannot be trusted with much as well. As soon as the something has been given, some power has been given to you or something, you have abused it. While, for example, if a king is given power and he uses it wisely, then it means he has passed a very important test. That's a sort of a, one of the last tests before becoming a Buddha. Because as becoming a Buddha, then you are given power over the souls of people. Like Jesus, he crucified, he was crucified and he became the king of the world. He says, all the power in earth, on earth and in heaven has been given to me. No, that is a huge statement. No, so to be given all the power on earth and in heaven, first you have to be tested. And therefore, that test comes like this, that whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. It is said that, for example, Judas, it's written in by the saints, by the different saints in their commentaries, that Judas was stealing from the money of the collectivity. Judas was the cashier of the group of Jesus. He was the money keeper because he was used to money. He was a bit more educated. He and Matthew were the two people who could read and write and do such, such stuff. No? And Judas... They say, maybe they malign him afterwards to take revenge on him. But they say that even when Jesus was living and he was doing the cashier thing, he was sometimes abusing the money. Not much. But Jesus was receiving lots and lots of donations. <clears throat> people were very grateful to Jesus and they treated him like some people treated him like he was the Messiah. And they gave him everything. When he asked for a donkey to ride into Jerusalem, they gave him a donkey. You know, like nobody complained that, well, this man, he's asking for too much. No, everything. He was treated almost like a king because people believed in him. And they had a cash box. And Judas was, you know, sometimes using some of that cash box for his own personal interest. No? So that's what Jesus is saying. If you not have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches, with the spiritual things? How will you become a ruler in Shambhala when you have been botching things down here? Like what kind of qualification are you bringing? People sometimes think that the high and the low are not related, but they are related to each other. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Property, try to think. It means cities. It means grace. 
It means gifts from God. It means angels and other entities that are assisting you and that are supporting you. It's like the whole industry. Why should it be given to you when you can't handle it properly? Thus, and then he twists it into his Vedantic style of teaching. No, because he says, at least if people would be trustworthy, like this shrewd manager who did something to make the people remember. The shrewd manager went to somebody and he said, how much do you owe to my master? And he said, a thousand bushels of wheat. And then he says, take your bill and make it 800. No, at least pay 800. Like a bank sees it, cannot get everything from you. It says, can you at least give me 80% so I don't lose so much? No, at least. So he was shrewd. He made a compromise which was not 100% good. But it was the lesser evil. It was like choosing the lesser evil out of the two. And Jesus says sometimes it comes to that. It comes to that the people of this world, at least they should choose the lesser evil out of the two. No? A Tibetan woman was asked by the Chinese soldiers to shoot a lama, just to mock him and to mock the whole Tibetan culture. And the Tibetan woman took the gun and shoot herself. That's the lesser evil. She considered that committing suicide was better than killing a lama. No, She knew that committing suicide was not good. But she simply said, rather than killing this lama with my own hand, no, I would rather kill myself. So when they gave her the gun loaded, she killed herself. No? And that was, it's, it's, this is what this planet is like. It was not a clean solution, this one. We can say it's heroic. Hey, it was suicide, you know, as a lesson. Why would you want to shoot yourself to get out of it, to avoid the lesson? Maybe she should have said, torture me to death. I will not do it. But she didn't have the courage to be tortured to death. It would have been still death, but not by her own hand. But it would have been maybe much more horrible. And therefore she preferred a quick one, a painless one. No, it was not really the most heroic structure like she could have said, crucify me. You know, like Jesus. Hey, but crucifixion is a very, very heroic thing. Not many people would dare to go there. No, and that's why I say uh, Jesus is acknowledging the fact that sometimes spirituality is choosing the lesser evil of the two, actually. And he says, even this shrewdness will make you to be commended. The master commended the dishonest manager. <clears throat> so in the end, he takes it like it's about what your soul is faithful at the deepest level. And he formulates it by saying, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the other and despise the one. You cannot serve both God and money. Please remember that's exactly what Opus Dei does. It tries to bring the money to use them for God. But they consider that they don't serve the money. They still serve God. Their love is for God and the money is an evil which they have to use. 
It's a sort of a dirty thing, which if they don't use, the Catholic Church would have fallen apart long ago. And to make the survival of it, they simply said, come on, we can adapt to the capitalism. We can adapt to the 20th century. We have to adapt or otherwise we will disappear. So here what Jesus says is that even when people are making compromises, which the beings of light don't like too much, what matters in the end is where is your final allegiance to what do you give your allegiance you cannot serve both god and money because if money is seen as god you remember the jews the whole jewish culture has a story about being greedy for money and tricky for money the biggest accusations of people who are satanic with their money is about the jewish culture Modernly, in modern times, sometimes people say, oh, the Chinese are equally bad and others. But in the West, it was mostly the Jewish culture which was considered to have an almost pathological attachment to money, greed, uh, wealth and these things. And then money, you remember, the Jews were worshipping the golden calf even when Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Like 40 days is not too much they went to Mount Sinai, and a month ago they had crossed the Red Sea. Moses had opened the Red Sea. God had opened the Red Sea for the Egyptian Pharaoh. And then Moses was absent just 40 days, and they made a golden calf. To make that golden calf, it should have taken them one week. So they didn't even take 40 days. It took 30 days. And they started planning to have another god and some other idolatry, some other idol worship. No? Therefore, and it was a golden calf, you know, the golden calf. And thus, this issue has been very strong in the Jewish culture since old, old days. And uh, then there appears this that Jesus says, you know, it's like you could use money for God, but you cannot serve money as a God. In you, there always has to be the final choice, the, the ultimate choice. The Pharisees who loved money, that most of them were wealthy Pharisees, that's why the word Pharisee means somebody who is a fake, you know, who pretends to be holy but isn't, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to one, he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. This is a very harsh statement because it was in the, expressed in a different way by a Polish philosopher called Stanislav Jerzy Lem, if I'm correct. Uh, I may have forgotten the name. He wrote a lot of aphorisms and philosophical thoughts and some of them are like one-liners, you know, like sutras. And one of his famous thoughts is in hell, the good character is the devil. 
Because in hell the devil is the boss. Nobody dares to speak against the devil in hell. So in hell people always say, Hail Satan, you know. He is the boss. But he is detestable. You should piss on him. You should spit on him. Nobody dares to do that in hell. Therefore, Jesus says, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And why is that? Because we are in Kali Yuga. If you would have lived in the Tibetan culture, if you would have lived in some other super spiritual culture, then that wouldn't have been true. For example, the Tibetans had the clear request that all the gold and the precious stones, it was not applied to silver and semi-precious stones, but so uh, semi-precious stones and silver were free, but all the gold and the precious stones like diamonds, rubies, sapphires, the real big ones, they were reserved only for Buddhism, only for religion. Not the monks. The monks were dead poor. But the Buddha statues, they were plated in gold, plated with diamonds and sapphires and rupees, precisely to show this contempt towards material values. And look what is most valuable in this life. We give it to Buddha. The same thing is happening in the Guru culture of India. How do you imagine that Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was driving Rolls Royces? Because that's the mentality in India. We can give everything to the Pope. We can give everything to Rajneesh. They can do whatever they want to do. You know, they are beyond controversy. But we don't keep the wealth for ourselves. Giving the wealth is a way of showing that we piss on the human values. That whatever people are fighting for, like ever since the 16th century especially, England is fighting for money and power. And some people are giving the money to Buddha or to Rajneesh or to the Dalai Lama or to whatever. No? That's precisely to demonstrate that that's why the Arabic world calls America and the Anglo-Saxon culture the great Satan. Because in the American and Anglo-Saxon culture, Everything spins around the money. It's all about money, 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 money. I was reading this novel from medieval Japan. And this guy was all the time being intoxicated by the fact that he should go back to England to Queen Elizabeth I with a ton of money and give her half. And then she will make him a baron or a count or something like this. This is the toxicity of this Anglo-Saxon culture, which is polluted by some of these very dirty ideals. And that's why, think, we are in Kali Yuga, and the good guys are the bad, and the bad guys are the good. Who is closer to God? The Ayatollah Khamenei from Iran, or George W. Bush, uh, second, twice-born Christian or whatever he proclaimed to be. I don't want to give you the answer to this one 
because I don't want to make proselytism on one side or the other. But it's a very valid question. In the eyes of Shambhala, who is closer to God, Khamenei or George W. Bush? Think, this world is upside down and the people who seem to be decent citizens, all the Rothschilds and Rockefellers and all the Morgans and Donald Trumps and all the you know, other people of their category, they, you know, Soros and Henry Kissinger and all these great politicians and gophers and this, they all of them seem to be honorable citizens. Bill Clinton, you know, Barack Obama, you know, very decent citizens. What if what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight? And then that is the great Satan. And you served it for a life, and when you die, your guardian angel shows you the mirror of your life, and he says it's exactly upside down than what you have thought it is. There is a medieval legend, if I think it's among the Trappist monks, of two monks, Catholic monks, who are taking a vow that whoever of them will die first will try to come in a dream to the other one and tell him something about the other world. Because there is this wall of silence which prohibits us to know clearly what is what. And to have a bit of light, to have a bit of, you know, you know, like to, to, to know something, to have a little bit of that. And indeed one of them died before the other. And then in the three days after his death, he came, he appeared to other in a dream. And he just told him two words in Latin. These people were talking Latin in their culture. No? And the two words were totaliter aliter, which means totally otherwise, totally different. No? Like you think that this is this, you know, and then you go there and it's like, oops, shit, no. I think I did good. Remember when Mahatma Gandhi, there was this man who said, I killed children because they killed my child and so on, you know. And Mahatma Gandhi, who had a clear spirit, he said, I'm going to hell anyway, this Muslim guy or Hindu guy. He said, I killed lots of Muslims and so on, children, women, men, because they killed my child and then what to do, I lost my soul completely. And Mahatma Gandhi, he said, I know a way to go out of hell. I know a way for you, concretely, were you talking to me in the middle of a crowd to stay out of hell? And he said, take a child which was, whose parents were killed in this riot and grow it. But just be sure that it's a Muslim child while the father was Hindu and he was hating the Muslims. And said, just make sure that it's a Muslim child and that you grow it up as a Muslim child. You let it be Muslim and grow up as an adult to be Muslim. What is, because people would say, we took a lot of children like Mother Teresa, no? But actually we're thinking about converting them. Maybe you did something really bad. What is valuable in the eyes of men, he saved, the, the Catholic Church saved the lives of a lot of Indians in America and converted them to Catholicism. 
No, it, there was a price for it, and therefore what became very praiseworthy could be abominable in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God, you have to use the judgments of Jesus. You have to use the black and white things. That's why Jesus was criticizing people for this hypocrisy. And he said, you know, the Pharisees are rich, dressed up, <clears throat> they call, you know, and they cultivate like, look, those are, there is a very important uh, priest, a very important rabbi called whatever, Joseph, and that Joseph is a great man, we should listen to him. And Jesus says, what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. When Pope John Paul II interviewed Mother Teresa, he said, what I can do for you? What can I do for you? When she became famous and she was about to take the Nobel Prize and you know the Catholic Church then wanted to use her reputation to the advantage of the Catholic Church. And Mother Teresa says, if you really want to help me, give me a wing of the Vatican Palace so that I put street people in it, homeless people in it, and feed them. Of course it never happened. Right? So, the Pope is going dressed in gold and whatever and everything. Even the popes which are modest and so on. I'm not accusing the pope. I'm accusing the fact that the whole institution of the church has created something which is glamorous and pompous and shining to impress people. This scene is very beautifully caught in the uh, Franco Zeffirelli movie about Francis of Assisi, Brother, Son and Sister Moon. No? where this guy comes stinking and with dirty feet and, you know, he was probably walking through cow dung and, you know, he was like filthy like a farmer from the field and stinking probably and dressed in a sack. It was part of the Christian mysticism not to wash too often, so not to generate sensuality in the body and so on. And the Pope was dressed in gold and so on. And he came down and he said, you know, you are the real deal. And we here living in this pomp and this luxury, we lose the reference. We lose the, the true ground zero. We don't understand really where people are. And, when, and then the Pope bent over and kissed his feet. He kissed the feet, the dirty feet of Francis of Assisi. Now he said, and now I remember that I was like you when I was young. And now that I'm 50 years later and I'm Pope, I'm just living in luxury and I forgot all that thing. And he said, that's why people are against you. Because you remind to them and you put them to shame. Because people value. The father of Francis of Assisi was happy that he was one of the richest merchants in Assisi. Or whatever that town was. No? And Francis threw through the window all the money and all the clothes and all, you know almost made him go poor. He never became poor. He stayed wealthy. But the Italian arrogance was like, look, look, we have money. We are important. I'm an important man. I'm dressed up showing it and so And we have a tower full of clothes and gold, you know. And Francis of Assisi said, what an empty thing. You know, you think that makes you be somebody and that makes you be nobody, really. What is highly valued among men 
is detestable in God's sight. That's why all these social values, you know, that when you see that people are socially admired, this greatly diminishes their value. Please remember this. A man like Padre Pio, he was socially punished. Other and other great people, they were socially marginalized. And then you see a Pope which becomes very popular. Then you see, I don't know who else, what other examples, a Dalai Lama, uh, who become highly sociable. Something is rotten. Something is rotten in all this. No, because in Kali Yuga, things are exactly upside down of what they are supposed to be. And that's why Jesus here is coming with a very bitter thing. Like he says, in this cesspool, in this mud hole of Kali Yuga, there are people who will choose the lesser evil. They will make compromise, they will be the shrewd manager. And even that is commendable because it means in their heart they still serve God. But otherwise he tells to the Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of man. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. He himself said it another time, the first shall be the last and the last shall be the first. So, it's very much to be meditated upon because we live in a world where the values are very, very twisted. And people say, you know, if yoga is so great and good, then why doesn't everybody do yoga and everybody revere the great yogis? It doesn't. In India, why didn't everybody revere Sri Aurobindo, Swami Shivananda, Paramhamsa Yogananda, why did Maharishi Mahesh Yogi had to go away from India and he lived in Holland or wherever he lived for the rest of his life? He even tried to help India and they tried to build a tower, a big tower building in Bhopal, in a city of central India. And the Indian government, they just destroyed the project completely. Like, what is happening? So he continues, we are still in this chapter number 16. He gives additional teachings to this. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. John is John the Baptist. So basically Jesus says it very clearly. There was the law of Moses and the prophets which were valid until three years ago. Because then John was replaced by Jesus. Because John said, this man, this being, I'm not worthy to tie his shoelaces. John was a big prophet. People considered him a prophet. And he said, this is something else. I'm not worthy to tie his shoelaces. But because this is the Messiah. This is God coming to the earth. It's a divining, it's an avatar. It's not another of us people. John could be considered a very advanced soul. 
but you cannot compare an advanced soul with a divine incarnation. A divine incarnation is something else completely. No? And so Jesus says it very clearly. This is what uh, the Jewish culture cannot accept until now. That's why what I'm reading for you is the New Testament, or in English, the New Covenant. That God made a covenant with Abraham, and it was reinforced via Moses, and then when Jesus came, it all stopped and changed. Basically, Jesus says, what you did until John, John is like year zero. It's before Christ and after Christ. And the difference is at John. John was the last of the prophets. And then when John saw Christ, he said, hallelujah. Things have changed. Now the new thing is coming. John didn't live to see because he was killed. He was assassinated. But he knew, now my time is over. He even said, I have to decrease so that this guy will increase like a rising star. This is where the whole moot point with the Jewish culture is because Christianity has taken so many things from Judaism. But there is this stumbling stone. If Jesus was truly the Messiah or not. They, again, the Jewish culture is trying to falsify it in all sorts of ways. I remember I was talking with some guy who was a student in Judaic studies and so on, a Jew and so on. And, uh, you know, he heard me talking about Jesus and he said, well, you know, for us, like we know about Jesus, we, the Jewish uh, scholars and so on, uh, we know about Jesus, but Jesus eventually came to be considered as a minor prophet. This is the devilish thing, you know, it's like you cannot say Jesus was bad. So you say, okay, he was a prophet, a bit of a hippie, a bit too much anahata, a bit too much vata dosha. This guy, long hair, loose clothes, going there, you know, like a bit of a hippie and so on. But he preached very, very nice things from the heart and he spoke things from God. So uh, we can accept it. Yeah, he was killed. So was John. So was this. So was that. Many prophets were killed because people are dumb and they don't understand and so on. They wouldn't say it's our religion which became manipuristic and murderous. They would just say, well, shit happens, you know. Uh, they would muddle things up, confuse things up. And then they would say, uh, Jesus? Yeah, yeah, sure, we know about him. He was a minor prophet. Like brushing him under the carpet, you know? And this is, you know, this is the ultimate devilish thing. Because the point is that he was not a minor prophet. He was the son of God. Because he said it with his own mouth. He said, I and my father are one and the same. How can he have said 99% truths and then this 1% was just, oh, there he kind of botched it. Exactly the one which we don't want to hear. That one we consider he botched it. No? And thus, uh, Jesus is very clear. It's his own words. And again, these words exist in the Gnostic Gospels. You cannot say that the church has falsified the Bible. It exists in the Gospel of Thomas and many others. 
He says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, so after John, when Jesus appeared, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. He uses a strange, he uses in other parts of his discourses this. He says that everyone is forcing his way into it. Because people have to make an effort. Like I want to be violent and I will be non-violent. I want to be stupid and I will not. I want to be jealous and I will not. I want to be greedy and I will not. That means you have to exert a certain Spartan self-discipline. A spiritual Spartanism. You have to exert, you have to do it that way. No? And therefore, he says, everyone is forcing his way. It's like tapas. It's like he brings the concept of tapas, of tapasia. Everybody is doing a tapas, getting into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to draw out of the law. He basically, he says, what I'm doing here is the law, but it's the law updated because I'm God, I'm coming from God, and now I'm giving you the higher rendering of this law. So Jesus never claimed that Moses or Abraham were wrong. He always claimed that it's just a new time, it's the covenant, it's the forgiveness, it's man making peace with God and all that. And then he says a real strange thing. He jumps to a very strange subject. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is really something very big. Like Jesus speaks against changing sexual partners. He simply says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. Jump suddenly. It's out of the context. But you would say, come on, somebody has glued to this statement. He actually said it in two, three other places. He said converging things. Because the Jewish culture, the monotheistic Jewish culture, and others, we see the same thing in the Indian culture, in the Hindu, Vedic and Vedantic Indian culture. We see the same in the Muslim culture, to a large extent, which has appeared much later. It has appeared seven centuries later than these events, six, six and a half, seven centuries later. In all those cultures, people were emphasizing, and you can see the traditional Buddhist culture is the same. All the traditional cultures are about the fact that women are not unleashing their sexual power upon the world's population. Like, it's exactly the opposite of sex and the city. Libertinism for women. There has not been libertinism for women in the Thai traditional Buddhist culture. 
There has not been libertinism for women in the Hindu traditional society, Vedic or Vedantic. There has not been libertinism for women in the Jewish society, in the Christian society, in the Islamic society. And I have quoted already the five main religions on the face of the earth. Plus, if you study the other ten religions, the minor ones, Sikhism, Confucianism, Taoism, uh, Shintoism, and the others, yeah, which you hear about in our metaphysical workshop when you study it, then in none of them there has been this story. This story with sexual freedom strictly exists in Tantra. The sexual Tantra of the Tibetans and Indians, plus some of the sexual Taoism of the Chinese, are the only doctrines, and they are esoteric doctrines, they are for practitioners in inner circles, where this is considered to be a virtue and it is extolled because it is used in another way. Men and women are advised to open up sexually, as we call it, but there is, for example, there is no allowed jealousy. There is no allowed attachment. Like there are some very special conditions which make that the dynamite will not appear. It's like you say you cannot use nitric acid with glycerin so that you make nitroglycerin. So one of them is saying, okay, no glycerin is allowed in our culture. The glycerin being feminine libertinism, sexual liberties for women. And Tantra says, you can have a lot of glycerin in our society, but there is no nitric acid. Like one of them has to be missing, so you don't get the nitroglycerin and it explodes in your face. The combination between human desires, human vices, human attachments, human demonic tendencies, human materialism, and sexual libertinism, look what it is doing. I don't know if you are studying what has happened under the European and Marxist laws in the last 20 years. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, European and American laws. I said the word Marxist because people who study today politics, they say that both the Democrat tendencies in the United States of America not Donald Trump, funnily enough. And also the European Union, they are actually belonging to a trend of philosophy which is called neo-Marxism. They are materialistic, anti-religious, they don't favor God at all, and they actually believe that the masses want an even distribution of wealth. It's like today when the Americans explode in the street, they pretend they explode because of George Floyd or whatever his name, poor guy, was. But they go and destroy the Louis Vuitton shops or something. Because actually, when the French Gillette Jean, the yellow vests, exploded for weeks and weeks, half of a year, almost a year in Paris, 
They destroyed wealth on Champs-Élysées, all the luxury shops and hotels and cars and everything, because there is an envy of the poor people against the smart people who can make tons of money easily. And it's like the poor people hate their gut for a reason or another, which is sometimes not very wise. When Saint Barbara defeated men in philosophical contest, they assassinated her. On when Hyapatia of Alexandria defeated Christian bigots, bigots in philosophical debate, they murdered her. When Socrates showed to people the shit in their lives and the hypocrisy which they practiced, they made him drink poison and they assassinated him. People don't like to be shown that some people are superior. In the, there are people who are super intelligent, like this guy Elon Musk and so on. I'm not saying he's a good guy. I'm not saying he will go to Shambhala. I'm not saying he's a positive spirit. There are many people who report that many of his actions are very demonic and materialistic and twisted, and that he's a, psycho, he's a psychopath, a sociopath of some sort. That doesn't matter. Is he clever? This is the guy who created PayPal, for God's sake. And then he sold it for a gazillion dollars. No? It's like, you know, and then you are jealous that he has rockets and spaceships and so on. You know, but he created PayPal. Why didn't you create PayPal? Truth. Because you are stupid. You are not as smart as he is. Because he is simply super, super smart. And then we hate the gut of people that are super smart. That's just the way envy goes. And this envy is creating that today politicians who are part of this, the politics of Europe and of most of North America is called neo-Marxism. These people are Marxists. Five years ago, they inaugurated a new statue of Karl Marx in the city of Ghent or whatever, somewhere in Belgium. Like, until 20 years ago, if you said you're Marxist, it's like you're the devil, you know? It's like the Americans said, the commies are Satanists, the commies from Russia, and we, America, in God we trust, we are the people of God and all that bullshit, which was just lies and hypocrisy. And today, the wheel has turned, because after a valley there comes a hill, and after a yin there comes a yang, and the pendulum is moving exactly to the opposite extreme. And Western Europe and America, they are slowly becoming neo-Marxistic. And in this neo-Marxistic things, I don't know if you know, because some of these things are happening discreetly. I cannot give you the number of the law and this, but just go and do research. There is legislation passed in most of the European Union, United States, Canada, which legiferates sex with animals. If you love your sheep and you want to fuck her, it's fine. It's, it legiferates within special conditions pedophilia, that sometimes children can give their consent to be fucked. It legiferates a lot of things that your hair will stand like this. 
And of course, it slowly, slowly legiferates marijuana. Why not soon cocaine and heroin and others, you know? There are many of these libertarian people who say, why should people inject themselves heroin on the street and die when we can make a shelter for heroin addicts? They can go and inject heroin legally into a shelter where at least they will not die frozen and so on. Like very humanitarian excuses are being brought to these things. And that's why I'm saying that I started from this strange quote from Jesus. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. For women, the highest value was considered virtue. Virtue, and virtue, in case you forgot the meaning of the word, what's a virtuous woman? A virtuous woman is a woman who does not fuck around. It's as simple as that. That's what virtue means for women, to not fornicate. That's why there is no need for abortion, you know. Of course, if you go and have sex with 20 guys, you will have a pregnancy from time to time. No? But that's fornication. And today, it's becoming not only legitimate, it's becoming completely encouraged. Like women like Hillary Clinton and others, they are fornicating openly, and the people like Bill Clinton, they have sex in the Oval Office, and it's like, okay, you know, in the end it's just a big joke, because we are watching Sex and the City, so everybody is like that. This legiferation is against the old law. Please remember, there is an old law, and this old law simply says men and women have to be brahmacharis by celibacy. By, and when they get married, they should have limited sexual activity for a while and then cut it off as soon as possible. When I came to Thailand, the people who knew the Thai culture here, they told me, in the Thai culture, especially in the countryside and in a place like this, 15 years ago, the rule was that women will get married to men. They will make two, three, four children, whatever they thought the norm is. And then there would be no more sexual life in the family. The women, generally, 15 years ago, it was a sort of a common knowledge that women who are 35 years old or more, they didn't give pussy to the man anymore. And that's why it was a well-known thing that in the Thai culture, men were sometimes having concubines. It was illegal, it was an institution that men, especially if they had some wealth and they could afford, they could pay concubines because sex with their wife was finished. That being considered a Buddhist virtue. That was the Buddhist way to be for a family and for a woman. Like, okay, when you are 25, you want to fuck like a rabbit. We hope that when you are 35, you cut the crap. You've had enough. Okay, you've done your children. You've had your years of youth. Okay, now become Buddhist. Like, that's what Buddhist religion was teaching. In all the religions of the world, the classical ones, 
there was this sort of diminishing of sex and not transforming sex into an enjoyment. And then what about Tantra? How can Tantra be a spiritual path? Tantra is using the sling effect. When Apollo 13 was on its way to the moon and they had to, they broke down, an engineer was one of the engineers who was coordinating things. He realized, how are you going to bring them back when they fly with big speed towards the moon? The amount of energy is absolutely astonishing to stop them, turn them around, and push them back to the earth. So they came with a genius solution to sling them around the moon, to go around the moon, and the moon will throw them back with its gravitation. And then when they are coming back, they will add a little bit of push in the engines to take them out of the orbit of the moon and push them towards the earth. And they managed. So Tantra is like a sling effect. I remember a story with my guru from the communist times in Romania. I had learned about Yama and Niyama. And most of you who are listening to this satsang, you know what Yama and Niyama is. And you know it fits with the Jewish and Christian and Islamic morality. Like no theft, no such things. And... Uh, in the communist times, in the last 10 years, everything was falling apart. There was more and more corruption because the leaders were becoming dictators and crazy, paranoid, psychotic, psychopathic. And the whole nation was suffering because of that. So the, the, the human quality from 1980 to 1990, in the last 10 years of communism in Romania, the human quality was decreasing abruptly. All the beautiful ideals, they were beautiful on paper, all the beautiful theoretical ideals of communism and Marxism, people were pissing on them. They existed only theoretically on paper, but in practice, people were practicing some, a lot of corruption and a lot of other things. Lies, deceit, and so on. And a simple street form of this was that they were having, they were having the public transportation in Bucharest was having some minivans in which you can have 10, 11, 12 people and the driver. So these minivans were circulating some special routes in Bucharest and they would have a fixed trajectory and you would uh, stop them. You would hitchhike with them. And they would stop, they would open the door, you'd get inside, and you'd pay a ticket, because there were just 10, 12 people, it was not difficult to follow this. You'd pay for a ticket, the guy would give you the ticket, you'd sit there, and then uh, three kilometers later, you'd say, hey, I want to go back to the Union Plaza, I want to get down to the Union Plaza. So he would stop at the Union Plaza. And some people had started a very bizarre and very not Marxistic and communistic and not moral system. When they were going down off the bus, they would leave the ticket to the driver. So actually the driver was reselling the same tickets and he was putting the money in his pocket. There was no reason 
It was just like people's brains were getting rotten with corruption. It was like doing corruption for the sake of doing corruption. Like the passengers were not getting any benefit from this. But their mind was, if this guy can make an extra penny, we are all miserable in this communistic culture. Let him at least have some go happy at home to his kids with $100 in his pocket, which he made today. Which was, of course, undermining the government who was paying for the minivans. Like the government, the company, was not making the money because the money was being... <clears throat> the guy was reporting very low income in the end of the day because at least half of that money was going to his pocket. And then I see that my yoga teacher, I get with my yoga teacher into a minivan and he does the same. When he gets off, he put, gives the ticket to the driver. And I'm asking him, not the revolted or anything, you know, I was respecting my yoga teacher, and I just want to learn. And I'm saying, listen, this is not according to Yama and Niyama. Like, why would you do it? No? Like, why would you do it? Like, I understand that the others are idiots, and they act like lemmings, and they don't even think. They are just hypnotized by the collective corruption that in the collective mind there is a streak of corruption and everybody's mind is hypnotized. But what would you fall for it? Who are supposed to be a conscious person. And he said, by doing this, by accentuating the corruption in the communist government in the country, you make the country rot faster and then come out of it. It's like a roller coaster. The, when the roller coaster goes down, it goes like, it goes up. It's a sling effect. It's the same sling effect. Like It's like judo. When you fall on the back, you throw the other guy over the shoulder. It's the same effect that you have sometimes to go through the sling effect for it. Tantra is the sling effect. Tantra is trying to build virtuous men and virtuous women by sanctifying their sexuality, by refining their sexuality and bringing it to Anahata, Vishuddha, Ajna, so that it becomes hallowed again. It becomes sex with God, for God, in God. And thus, Tantra is very different from what Jesus is preaching. Jesus is not teaching Tantra. The methods of Tantra were not well known in the Middle East. And Jesus is never alluding. And by the way, there is also a paradoxical method which the Taoists from China are practicing, which is quite the other way around. No. He is not mentioning it. Either he heard about it or not. He never says. He is pragmatical. And he says, here, in this culture, with these people, that's what is to be practiced. That's what will work best right now. People will say, so why do you practice, you Swami Vivekananda teacher, practice Tantra? Because we are in the 21st century, and everybody has watched Sex and the City. That means we are in a totally different world. The standards of men and of women are very different and because of that 
the methods are very different. I said it once. There is a, one of these guys who is teaching PUA, pickup artists, the sort of quick seduction methods. There are some five or six famous of them. Strauss, Angelo, and a few others. The guy who wrote The Game, there is a famous book who started it all called The Game. And um, it's not The Game, the movie with uh, Michael Douglas. It's a, a book called The Game in which is about... There are methods of quick seduction. These people have studied NLP and others, and they've created the science which is called PUA, PUA, which means pick up artist. That some people, you know, by taking women, humiliating them, telling them you have a, a what's that? Is that a mole on your face? Oh boy, that's big, you know? And the woman feels so humiliated that you told her she had a big ugly mole that she's trying to have sex with you so that you like her in a, sort of as a compensation, as a psychological compensation. So these people are taking very beautiful women in a party and they insult them, they neglect them, and those women come immediately and they sleep with them in that night because that's how the psychology of the women is. So, of course, feminists and other women, some of the women, they hate these pickup artists because they are very successful and their methods are working, actually. And because they know, they understand the female psychology and they misuse it in this way, uh, then uh, they are very cynical about picking up women and having sex with them. And, and they, you know, the feminists are trying to demonstrate that it's an abuse, but they cannot really, nobody has been really tried for these things, you know. And so, so it's anyhow, it's a struggle. It's a typical 20th century wolf against wolf type of thing. And I remember having seen one of these pickup artists who was giving consultations about a video online about relationships. And he said, you know, if you want to pick up women and have sex with them, one every night and so on, then you use these methods. If you want to have a lifelong relationship with one which you love and cherish, he said, that's a different story. And he makes a very nice diagram showing the different psychological characteristics, how much self-confidence, how much of this, how much of that. And I'm trying to create the profile of the perfect woman. Like what would be a woman who would stand by you, who would be like a samurai woman and will die with you. If you go to hell, she will come with you to hell. You know, like she would be loyal and a woman, you know, like in the old days, you know, when you didn't expect the woman of Moses to exchange him for another man or something like this. Or the woman of Ramakrishna to exchange him for some other dude or something. Like the, or the woman of Rama, Sita, you know, to be disloyal and to just sleep with Ravana, the demon who kidnapped her and so on. And, um, and this guy is eventually started giving rules, you know, like there are different rules by which you select how to cut down and um, he gives all sorts of funny rules. He says, if the woman has a tattoo or a piercing, cut her off your list. Not like, but just by saying this on a satsang, how many women who listen to this have a tattoo or a piercing? And they say there are some of these pickup artists who say we are good to be fucked, but we are never good to be taken as wives because we have a tattoo or a piercing. This disqualifies us because it means we are wild at heart. We are ready to be like sex and the city. 
we are a little bit too independent, we are a little bit too much this or that. And he continues. And one of the rules, which was like, when I heard this one, I said, come on, man, you know, like now you are really stepping on the tail of the cat. He said, if she had more than three sexual partners in this lifetime before you, don't take her. Cut her off the list. No? I was thinking, what the heck is he talking about? Then I thought, most of the women that I've known in my family, most of the women that I've known in the generation of my parents and uncles, as well as most of the women that I've known in the generation of my high school class, if you ask them, 90% of them, they did not have more than one sexual partner in this life. They got married, they had one sexual partner, that was it. The Jewish tradition, the Hindu tradition, and Jesus is part of that, was contemplating the relationship between men and women as being based on brahmacharya, on celibacy, on killing your desires, like have children for two, three years, then stop having sex. Try to become like brother and sister. The perfect marriage advocated by Augustine and other saints of the Christian church is the white marriage. The, your father and mother are forcing you to get married because they are idiots and they think that happiness exists only if you get married. So you know what? Say okay, get married, go in the bedroom, give each other a big hug, a kiss on the cheek, and so be it for the rest of your life. Like live like brother and sister. Become the best chums and the best friends in the world. When the doctor will come and check the woman at 50, at the age of 50, she'll say, Madam, you've been married for 30 years and you are still a virgin. It, in all honesty, that's what Christian saints preach. Yeah, but they say, we know not many people have the virtue, the strength, the Spartan spirit to live like that. But at least we can have a second line of defense, a third line, like, okay, don't be virgin, have sex for 10 years with just one partner in your family. And when things are getting shitty and boring, then stop. Stop and become solid citizens. For pray. Pray to God. Keep yourselves busy with something else. Sex is not, you know, sex and marijuana and sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know. None of those. Don't have those. No? Stay clean. Live a pure life in this way. Today, when people hear this, they are scorning it. They are laughing. They are like... You know, it's like, are you mad? Who would do this? Who would go there? The society, especially in the last 50 years after the 1960s, the society has passed the point of no return. Like, it's not really possible. Can you contemplate that the Dalai Lama or Swami Shivananda or whoever will become so charismatic as to tell to men and women, push back in your box, get back to your box, 
live like in the Neoplatonic love of the ancient Greeks. Live like Rumi says, or no? Everybody will scorn and say, come on, man, you're crazy. So, that's where the problem is. All the old religions, they see, and Jesus is part of that, they see that the relationship between the man and the woman should be minimally sexual. Only minimally, you know, like, okay, if you can't hold it and you are totally obsessed with your sexual energy, then do some, but not more than necessary. And then cut it down as soon as possible. And that's it. And don't exchange sexual partners. Because the thing is very clear. The sexual attraction for one partner is lasting for three, four years. I have met men and women who change sexual partners every three months. And I met men and women who have been with the same sexual partner for ten years. But most of the time it was not going brilliantly. Like sex became second, third, fifth, tenth priority in their lives. First priority was making money, paying mortgage, raising children, having a career, doing this, doing that. Other things were there. And very often they had collateral sexual relationships out of the marriage. Those were the salt and pepper. Those were the spice of their life. Because this one was not anymore. So, of course, by changing sexual partners, you always keep the butterflies in your stomach. Every new sexual partner is like, yay! It's carnival again. It's excitement again for three years per average. And thus, for example, in 30 years of sexual life, between 20 to 50, you could have 10 partners. Three years each. And then you would live in a constant carnival. Because you would constantly be excited. But that excitement means that if you don't practice Brahmacharya, the tantric way, you would spill your ojas and spill your ojas and spill your ojas all the time. So actually that would mean less spirituality, less bodhicitta, less desire for enlightenment. And thus, the old spirituality had this trick that sexuality had to be kept low because people don't know how to do it right. Tantra claims that it has a method of doing it right with Brahmacharya. And then suddenly this limitation is thrown to the dustbin, like this is not valid anymore. Ah, if you can do it like Milarepa or like whoever, like Abhinava Gupta, then it's a different story altogether. We're talking about something else. And then it can be that the more you do it, the better it gets. But it's a slingshot effect. Yeah, like it's judo, it's aikido. You fall and you throw the enemy over the shoulder. So it's still to reach the God. But it's to reach the God through the other method, through the other way. People who are today preaching, not multiple partners, 
no sex in the city, no abortions, no divorces. And like Jesus, listen, anyone who divorces his wife because the oxytocin is over and it's not fun anymore and marries another woman commits adultery. He calls it adultery, fornication. It's horrible. And the man who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. A woman says, well, it's not my fault. The idiot divorced me and now I'm alone. Yeah, but I myself am not going to be part of that as well. Like it doesn't make me less innocent that you pretend you are innocent and the man left you. And now I'm just going to contribute to that. It's exactly like the Buddhists of Thailand who say we're not killing animals. It's the slaughterhouses who are killing them. We're just buying them dead already. How idiotic do you have to be to find such an excuse when actually if you don't pay for the meat, the meat industry will stop. It will stop in 10 years. It will disappear. There will be no meat industry if nobody on this planet would not buy meat. They cannot produce it and let it rot on the shelves. Thus, you know, it's complete absurdity. So here he says, if, you, if, a, if a man takes that divorced woman, he's actually supporting that industry because the, the wheel is turning. The cycle is continuing. So he says somebody has to put the foot down and says, no, no. In India, nobody would take a widow. So you should better not be a widow. Widows had a terrible fate in India. There is this movie of Mira Nair, I think, which is called Water or something. She made Earth, Water, Fire. And uh, and in this movie, it's about the fate of divorced women, even in modern India, in modern times. Not now in the 21st century, but like 50 years ago and more. And uh, it's sort of like any artist, you know, she's an artist, a bohemian artist, and she's trying to bring up some compassion, like, ah, that's unacceptable, we are modern people, let's be like the New York Village people and uh, California, progressive, democratic, uh, uh, Woodstock, hippies, flower power, it's a new, brave new world and so on. But there was a meaning to that culture. No, because it was a way of like, this condition is not good. You should not be part of this condition. I'm not managing to explain it very eloquently right now, because I don't want to go into all the details of that culture. But Jesus is part of that old culture, which simply says men and women should be disciplined, Spartan, without desires, live a holy life and consecrate everything to God. And if it's difficult, it's difficult and that's it. That has become unacceptable today. And that's why when you read this, you say, you must be kidding me. No, like Jesus doesn't accept this. And then what about Tantra? I told you, Tantra is the sling effect. It's exactly the opposite. It's the Judo and the Aikido of it. If you cannot stop your desires by abstinence, like you see in the movie Samsara, where that guy is asking him, you know, 
what will sex take? Because the guy is totally obsessed with sex, 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 and in the end, he discovers, you know, it's like, what is best? Somebody is asking him, what is best, to fulfill all your desires or to control one single desire? Because if you can control one desire, you can control them all. The problem is the principle of desire. The problem is that people are possessed by their desires. And Buddha said it clearly. Desire is without end. It pushes you to want more and to want more and to want more. And never enough is enough. And thus, Jesus is from the Spartan streak of spirituality. No, there should be no compromise. People should not slide into it. You know, you would say, what if Jesus would have known how humanity will become in 2,000 years? Well, he probably did because he was God. So he had the clairvoyance to see. But that, to them, even the way Europe and America were 100 years ago, the way the world has become in the last 30, 40 years, it's a nightmare from a sexual standpoint. And when I have learned Tantra, I ask my teacher, how are you going to push people back to be like Sita and Rama? You know, to be like Sita Ram, to be like the perfect couple. No, the, per the man-woman as the Vedas sees it. And he says, it's only with a slingshot. He says, I'm not preaching sexual repression like trying to stop Apollo 13 to go to the moon and turn it back. It has to go beyond the moon and come back through the power of that. So, Tantra is saying, okay, if you cannot refrain, then make it 110%. Do it until it comes out of your ears, you know. Do it until you are bathing in sex and sensuality, to the point where your nerve system says, you know what, I've had sex for 10 lifetimes. And now I know what it is. And, you know, my clear meditation can see that it's just desire, desire, desire. As much as the man pushes his pelvis in the pelvis of the woman, they cannot become one physically. It's a sort of a, ah, ah, ah. Please, ah, ah, they try to become one. But physically you cannot become one. So eventually something in your mind wakes up and says, you know, the real union is the union of the spirit, is the union of the heart. Because the bodies cannot become one. The bodies try, but there is a limit in how far you can reach with the body. Ah, your astral bodies could merge. Your soul could merge. And at the level of the spirit, you are one already. Because you are Shiva, you are Shiva. I am Shiva, you are. We are one already. So that's the real union. The real union is the union of the astral body, of the mental body, of the causal body, and eventually the union even the union of the astral body cannot be complete, complete, complete. The only complete union is the union of the spirit. The union at the level of Atman, of the Supreme Self. And that's why Tantra says, 
Well, we can do it the other way around. And what's the condition? The condition is that you have to practice a perfect brahmacharya. Because if not, you have sex, and after sex you will not be able to meditate. And if you meditate, your mind will be foggy and sticky. And your energy will not be in Ajna Chakra and in Sahasrara because you have discharged your ojas. And then, no, what meditation are you having afterwards? Your meditation is sleep. <coughs> oh, that was great. You know, but that's not a clear, that's not Buddha's meditation. And thus, it's true that Tantra is completely, completely like the dot of yang in the middle of yin. You know, it's completely the opposite. There is a spirituality which is 90% the way Jesus has presented it. And then there is Tantra, which is a very peculiar way of going there by doing exactly the opposite, by using the slingshot effect. So, that's why what Jesus brings here, because he spoke, no, he says the law is true, I'm not trying to destroy the law of Moses, the prophets all the way until John, they gave you the right law and I'm giving you the upgrading of that law. And he gives this example with sexuality which is very pungent today. That's why many people who practice a fake spirituality, they also practice a fake Tantra. You know, we in Agama, we are being hated a lot by people who hate our Tantra and who claim that they do a better Tantra. And it's because their Tantra is fornication, it's full of desires. It's just some Kama Sutra story. It has no spine. It has no sublimation. It has no Brahmacharya. It has no Spartan spirit. It has no meditation. It has no understanding of Jesus and where the truth resides. And it's just a license for hedonism. The opposite of this Spartan or Stoic philosophy in Greece was called hedonism, which means please yourself as much as possible, as often as possible. That's how you should live your life. Which, in those days, it was considered a trap and a failure. In Tantra, one can turn the tables. But Tantra is very strict. It says a woman can have multiple partners, but then she should not manipulate them. She should not discharge their sexual energy. She should not get attached to them. She should not play games. She should not do this. She should not do that. There are other places where you have to screw that up, where you have to be very careful. You pay for that sexual freedom, so that in the end, you go in the way of Buddha. You, you go towards surpassing your desires. 
I forgot exactly how it's expressed in the movie Samsara, but that's exactly the question. What is more important, to fulfill all your desires or to take one and just control it, surpass it? Because that's the key. The key is that one cannot just let go and surrender to all of their desires. One must be strong somewhere, somewhere in one point. There must be something. For example, Tantra is very strong in Brahmacharya that you play with fire, but you are still adhering strictly to Brahmacharya. And Tantra is very strong that you are playing with relationships and you are cutting the attachments and the desires. A monk who lives in a monastery, you can say that monk, he never got attached to that woman. Of course, because they didn't even meet. He was locked in a monastery and he never saw that woman. But a tantric man who was fucking that woman, he could have been attached to her. And he had to make a great effort to not be attached, to not fall into that trap. So he paid for his sexual freedom with the fact that he had to keep... The monk didn't have to worry if he was getting attached to women because there were no women coming to his hermitage and visiting him. The monks in Mount Athos in Greece, they locked themselves on a peninsula where there are 22 or 23 or 24 monasteries and women are not allowed on that peninsula. There has not been a woman in Mount Athos for 800 years. Even female animals were prohibited so that they don't fuck some donkey female or something, you know? Nothing. Just male animals and men. That's all. And, of course, homosexuality was considered to be sodomy and a real horrendous sin. So they were staying away from it as much as... I'm not saying it didn't happen. Maybe it did. But very seldom and it was very shameful and very hush-hush. And uh, it was never encouraged or promoted. Thus... What I'm trying to say here is either one is going on the way of the strictness and then there is a way of Tantra, but the way of Tantra is strict somewhere else. It's not that it's not strict. So here, Jesus can seem to be unnecessarily strict, but he's actually just quoting the ancient law. Can you tell me what time it is? Because I don't have... The watch room. 10.20? So let us stop here. Um, we will continue with the next parables. We are towards the end of chapter 16. This is very a very strong teaching from Jesus in which he shows to be part of the old-fashioned traditional religious style Again, Jesus was not contemplating Tantra. It doesn't say that Jesus would disagree with Tantra. I feel that Jesus does not disagree with Tantra. But it did not exist in the Middle East in that century. And it was completely unnecessary and redundant, complicating life 
that he should introduce it and say, by the way, if I am to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then I have to tell you that in China, in India, in Tibet, there is a strange method also, which could go the other way around, but then you have to be very strict about this other thing. That he didn't bother. What they had there was good enough, and he was staying within that framework of what they were teaching there. He said what the prophets taught, and the law, it was okay. It was not wrong. So let's stick with it. Let's stay with it. That's why Jesus is uh, on the side of this Spartan, stern, ascetic lifestyle. And one should meditate on these values as well. Enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining. And I will see next time. I hope I'll make a satsang on another alternative theme. And then in two satsangs again, there will be the Gospel of Luke.